0: Maybe you could begin by telling us who you are. Okay, I'm Richard Hamilton. I've lived in Peterborough since 1982 and has probably been active in the activist community here since about then, or 83, something like
1: that. Okay, maybe uh, uh, to begin, you could talk about, uh, talk about your beginnings as an activist.
0: or I mean, You might have been an activist since birth, but perhaps not. <laughs> uh What started me? I guess, I mean, probably one can go back that far, eh? Uh, For sort of recognizing what's wrong and stuff like that. And I guess I got overwhelmed by the amount of talk in university and the, uh, how pervasive the Marxist viewpoint was. And I kind of thought then, well, gee, something must be happening. So many people are talking, things must be going on. And this is really exciting. And then I went out to look at what was going on Found all the people who were talking within the university weren't doing, and did manage to find a few people out in the community who were doing. Uh, Projects for change was then in existence for. I don't Maybe when I joined them, I guess they were in existence about six months, and I did a little bit of student politics before that, but quickly went over to uh, into the community. Had, had you
1: been a politicized or active person before? Your university days at no, all?
0: Or? No, no, probably more talking. I don't. The university, if anything, uh, was negative towards me being an mm. activist. It, if anything, I just I heard a lot of talk and thought then that there must be a lot of people doing things. and Maybe that's the first time I've been immersed in people talking about Marxism. And it's disappointing to find that so few people were doing anything and had to go out of the university setting and maybe quickly found that those two things were in... Uh, were opposed being active mm-hmm. being... Is, was there
1: anything in your sort of pre-university life that would would have made you receptive to
0: Marxist sort of ideas? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, my working class background made me so. I was very aware of classism within society. Um, my work experience, you know, um, working once, for example, was uh, I worked in a factory... For several years different jobs in factories one factory job I had I was grinding um, truck caps you know those fiberglass caps that go on the back of trucks and mm. I started work at 3.30 and I finished at 12 and grinding these all day the fiberglass fibers would penetrate into your clothes and I'd constantly had fibers under my skin and rashes breaking out mm. and you're inhaling resin all day too which has given me a headache there wasn't adequate ventilation there and uh, when I got off work, because where I was living, there was kids living in the house and I couldn't shower, so I'd have to try to sleep in my clothes, because i was sleeping now in a pup tent, because the house was too small, mm. and my pup tent was filled with fiberglass fibers, so I couldn't take off my clothes, and my skin was full of them, so I'd try to sleep and I'd be itch my way through the night, and would finally sleep and wouldn't wake up until about an hour before going to work, and this went on for several months, and then I quit and said, Well, I'll go to university as an escape. Right. So I had this going into university, this realization of of how bad the work experience can be about inequality, about classes, and so on. And so these things spurred me on to
1: do, do you think that you were uh, do you think that the primary emotion that that um, was coursing through your veins at that point was, was the what, sorry? The primary emotion. emotion. Were you uh, was there a lot of anger in you at that point being placed in this situation? Society? No, I think or? that's
0: one of the things that made me become an activist is because I 100% accepted my place in society. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from the background I did, uh, for example, when I quit school in grade 10 at 16 years old, my family didn't put up much resistance because that's the expectation level. Out of eight kids, one person graduated from high school when they went back and and went to high school at night, mm-hmm. uh, no one else graduated from high school, there wasn't really the expectation that I would, and so uh, there was no resistance to the expectation, level was lower than it would have been in different class backgrounds, you develop less of a sense of self-worth and stuff, so any shit that's dumped upon you, you fills your lot in life, right. and so when you kind of start seeing other people's lots in life, like when I come to university, here first it was a bit different on the prairies because there was a lot of farmers, kids, and had a different life experience. Mm-hmm. But when I came here at first, and when I found it was the norm for parents to be professionals and not labourers, it was totally foreign to me. I mean, I yeah. always talked in reference to, well, what kind of labour do your parents do? <laughs> they yeah. say, you know, uh, start talking about having this government job and this owning this company and and so on and so forth. It was... A, a, a fantasy world to me didn't exist I didn't believe it existed you mm-hmm. know in, in a real way in an internalized sense you know it's totally foreign to me It's what happened in other countries not around me right. you know metaphorically so,
1: so what did that do to you uh, did, uh, how how did that process make you active? I think
0: maybe part of things was I started developing about a sense of self-worth and empowerment. And st- this also was very tied up into activism, so that's kind of a mutual development that of a sense that, that I wasn't less than other people. Were. You know, it's not something you think out, that you say, no. I am less than other people, but I think in retrospect, you kind of say, well, the reason I took all this shit and thought it was my light in life was because of my background and because of social projections, you know, how others uh, perceived you and treated you and and uh, that 's typically the case in in class situations as
1: as this sort of new world that you 'd never experienced before unfolded before you did that um, did that make you hopeful that you might aspire to become <laughs> <laughs> like these, this no these, you know. <laughs> it made me but, hopeful that I might not <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but did it, did you have a lot of anger or do you have a lot of anger still towards
0: no i I really liked I think it wasn 't geared by anger no right um I think that that I realized things could be different, that, um, like I said, I think predominantly that difference just gave me a good perception of, of self-esteem and self-worth, and how low self-esteem I had before, and how it, that perception helped me develop my own self-esteem. I don't think I felt anger towards anyone. I didn't, in a lot of respects, feel their life in life to be better. Mm-hmm. You know, Physically, they had it better off. Right. Mentally, there was... Just as lost and delusioned, and, and in a lot of ways uh, as mentally anguished uh, 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 as the worst of the situation of the lower classes, yeah, you know. Right. But uh, so there, it wasn't really an anger thing then. And I don't think I often feel maybe I should be uh, motivated by anger, but I'm not. Um, I think in, instead it's just, just a sense of justice. I don't think I'm that emotional an activist, really, which is maybe a real problem. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost like an intellectual process. This is wrong, therefore change it. How do you change it? Well, I guess you'd be an activist. Yeah,
1: but presumably, I mean, even still, you shouldn't tell yourself short. I mean, presumably, those uh, either your emotions follow pace with your intellect, or, or I mean, to to come up with the work and the tenacity that's needed sometimes, I think you have to. Yeah,
0: there's certainly, you know, at times I feel quite emotional about it. And other times, uh, I you know I, I don't feel that emotionally driven. It's just something that I believe. What it's just a an understanding of what's right and wrong, and, and a belief in what's right should prevail. Mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: In the in the um, portion then after you sort of started to want to put your ideas into action, what sort of things did you do, or what sort of things have you done in the last while?
0: I let um, me think. This one. Back in, I don't maybe it's 1983, myself and a few others formed what was then called the Anti-Intervention Action Committee, and... We Am I s- starting the long list of Peterborough acronyms that yes. I've <laughs> over <laughs> it's true. six years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and we, um, what we largely addressed was just generally the intervention issue, and what we thought was important was Canadian involvement in third world issues. And so instead of focusing on the country that's been shit on, we focused on the country that was doing the shitting and the place we could affect, which was Canada, and look at Canada's policies as affected other countries. We looked at uh, Canadian industries that were were making profit off of the other countries. Um, so that, that was the focus of that group. We really predominantly we had some good rallies and a few things that bordered on civil disobedience, but we were never arrested for one action, that was terrific, was we uh, staged a mock kidnapping It was to uh, to illustrate uh, how people were, were, were being, uh, you know, just imprisoned without pause in i believe it's el salvador we're talking about then or just central america mm-hmm. generally and so we staged a we had a, a car marked as a military car and we had opp written on it and uh, official oppressive police <laughs> something like this uh, mm-hmm. written on the side of the car and then uh, we had one fellow standing on the street handing out pamphlets and then this car driving up and four people jumping out of it with in military attire, and start clubbing this fellow and throwing him back in the back of the car, and we did this a couple of times down george street and on the second time the the press were there filming this, and on the second time, a uh, police car saw this happening and and threw on its lights and pulled over the car and you know said "What hell's going on?" and questioned the fellow in the back as if he 'd actually been taken hostage or if if this was something staged and Everyone in the car said, "No, no, this is staged." And we, uh, myself and uh, and Jack Kern, who were I can't remember where I was told we were kind of watching, you know, f- kind of acting as liaison <laughs> with the public mm-hmm. just in case there was a problem. Uh, we whipped up to explain it. Then they made they isolated the person that was kidnapped and said, "Okay, you're safe. You can say what's the truth. Have you been kidnapped, <laughs> or is this a staging?" <laughs> this was all filmed on, on Czech news right. and. Uh, and uh, So it was a terrific action. We did some leafleting, uh, some protesting around war toys, that kind of thing. And that that was the extent of that group. And that maybe lasted for about a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was tremendous organization. Jack Kern was phenomenal for organization skills. And meetings started dead on time. And attendance was very good. And and it was a strict agenda. And everyone Mm -hmm. was very sort of diligent in their duties and stuff. Uh, It was a well-run group.
1: What what sort of um what was the what was the audience for things like
0: that? What do you mean the audience? Well who um who who were we trying to get this message across to? Who were we trying to get this message across to, yeah. I guess really it was twofold. One is was to try to speak to the people of Peterborough saying that really you have to take an active stance that being against political atrocities can't just be a passive act it has to be an active act you, really the government uh, needs not only to be they're fully aware of the immorality of their acts and so we can't just talk to them and say that what you're doing is wrong and please notice it's wrong mm-hmm. and then stop it instead we had to kind of force their hand and say we know what you're doing is wrong and we we resist you and your." acts of immorality and we demand that you stop them and stop doing these atrocities in our name with our compliance we had to say that really that the system it took more than just uh, uh, of just sort of verbally being against what it does you had to actively get out and and demand change.
1: That that sort of activism sometimes is criticized for doing more harm than good in the eyes of, of a lot of people, because it it, um, it takes what is it? What is a very important, serious issue, and and doesn't doesn't mock it, but sort of um, in, in the public's eye, in the public who are watching Czech news, perhaps makes it look like it's just a, a bunch of weirdo hippie freaks down on George Street. Um, th- do you think that actions like that can be successful as a as a, a popular education thing for you know a lot of people?
0: I think um, people who criticize those actions from that perspective are not really truthfully coming to terms with how drastic the situation is. How, Firstly, how strong the government is going to stand on continuing these uh, atrocities, that they're making a lot of profit by it and it's only when we make it uh, too costly for them not to permit these actions that they are changed. So to think that You know, what are the options? You write letters to your Prime Minister saying that we really don't agree with what you're doing. Well, they know what they're doing, tomorrow it's going to take more than a letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can petition, you can march up and down. None of these things seem to do anything. So I think what we're trying to say is that the situation we face is very desperate. We're living under a nuclear umbrella. There's countless atrocities being committed daily. Uh, Governments have been toppled. Uh, through, you know, illegal and immoral acts, so on and so forth. It's a very drastic situation and it requires drastic measures. And so if people say, well, it's illegitimate to respond to drastic measures with drastic measures, that Mm -hmm. the only way to respond to this is by taking a very passive actor, a very sort of, uh, you know, uh, low-key response, I I think they sadly misunderstand the crisis. no, I, I, I think they're very beneficial. Although it is very important to do these acts, I think a lot of times people can be attracted to activism for the sake of standing out, for the theater of it, or for the self-gratification of it. Mm-hmm. And if people are motivated by that, then they're probably going to try to stand out and bring attention to themselves. And then the uh, then the sort of sanctity of the act gets lost. The uh, I think when the the, the uh, injustice is borne in mind and really the focus is to end the injustice, then the, uh, then I think the importance of the issue and the importance of the action will come through and people who understand, people who are open-minded to it, if they're not open-minded then there's a lot of work to convince them. But I think we do need to operate on many different fronts to get the information across. That action may not get the information across to people and a different action will, maybe just an information campaign. But ultimately, I think we the, the end goal has to be that kind of action to say to the government that we are not willing to allow you to continue committing these atrocities in our name and that uh, that you, we have to get across to people that letter-writing or voting isn't effective in making those changes. I mean, there's been... God knows how many years and how many campaigns along those lines that have done nothing, Mm -hmm. you know. So we have to start asking of people to make more serious commitment, and that will make a difference. The... I've lost my train of thought now. Would you like some examples of civil disobedience actions I think have made a difference? Well, I think, yeah, sure. Okay, well, I think the Litton campaign... Uh, I mean, not that I in any way endorse the bombing that occurred there, and I don't think the bombing was effective. I think it was very counter-effective. It was, it was a gross act, in my opinion, mm-hmm. if someone was hurt. Uh, but the uh, the Lenten campaign, the civil disobedience that was occurring there, stopped letting from producing those guidance systems. They, they came out and said it was really too costly in, in public relations. Uh,
1: well, just talking about that for a second, what do you think it is in... I mean that the, it's it's one thing, I suppose, to um, to do the kind of things that you're talking about, street theater, and and trying to make people aware of things. Do you think it's a different thing in kind, or just an extension of that, to go off and and you know take great pains to plan uh, a very destructive, potentially life threatening action? Do you think do you think it's the same sort of thing in people, and one is just an extension of the other, or are we talking about different no, motivations?
0: I, I think it's very different because. I think that the uh, a non-violent, I mean, I believe in non-violent resistance, and that's the key term, is that it's non-violent. Uh, I don't think anyone should be used as a means. I suppose at, at some point, you know, like, c- can you condemn the uh, FMLN for violently fighting against the government? No, mm. I, I don't think you can, and I do support them in that. But, you know, the bombing in Lytton, It's not like we're in the middle of a potential guerrilla warfare that was needed and and would be successful. You're not going to fight the Canadian government with with warfare. I mean, in the beginning, tactically, it's stupid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Secondly, I think it, it shows a total disregard for people's lives, which shouldn't happen. I really think that at any time a person's life is lost, it should be as the absolute last resort. And I think in El Salvador and that is the case or in many countries. I don't think it is here because it's not a successful way to go. It's not It's not even the best resort to respond to violence. And non-violence is really the best resort we have. It's, it's the best way to go. It's... it's, it's, it's preferable to but do you think that
1: that's uh do you think that that the non sort of approach is um, i mean obviously to to go and do something like that people had to be operating not only on an intellectual level but on some greater emotional level than a lot of other people and and perhaps that that emotion was sort of love for the planet perhaps it was anger at Lytton and and the bastards that they are for making guidance systems mm-hmm. do you think that um Do you think that the the non-violent approach is something which is a sort of a natural extension of a lot of people's activism, or do they have to sort of work at suppressing something that's inside them to to do that? Yeah, I think,
0: yeah, you have to suppress a fear. I think, you know, we're all taught to be very afraid of the law and to, I think, in a lot of respects, to accept the unquestioned uh, sort of authority of the state. You know, we're not taught to respect international law that would call upon us, to actively resist the state in its its acts of war against its own population, which is committing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, we have to suppress uh, many years of training, and once you start doing these actions, it becomes easier to do. Um, So yeah, I I think it is a difficult thing to do, but it's important, and I I think the more people... if people take the time to examine what effects different uh, acts of protests have, how, how successful they are, and what acts, what level of protest they should be taking given the nature of the crisis as they perceive it, then I think that civil disobedience is a natural thing to come to. Mm-hmm. So you were giving examples of, of uh, things. Okay, um, I'll make so some another example. Uh, that's, that's a recent protest I was involved in that, and uh, we held a blockade outside of there, and that really bore witness to the crimes that were being committed inside you know, that were being done with the government's stamp of approval. They were selling arms to third world dictatorships, known human rights abusers, which is against their own law. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we blockaded, firstly, they dropped charges against us because oddly enough, that they, they were very honest about this uh, and the. Uh, the uh, I think that the crown attorney f- f- for the government came out and, and frankly said we don't believe we could win in the court mm-hmm. um, because uh, the Alliance for Nonviolent Action, who planned this, had decided to, to uh, bring in the, the, the War Measures Act and or the, well, there was legislation against selling weapons to, mm-hmm. to, to countries that were known to be human rights abusers. So they didn't feel that they could they could win in the court given that, their own law that they had made. And so they come out and frankly said, this is the reason why we're dropping these charges. Uh, also, then they come out and said that we will no longer hold such, uh, hold an armex on civil property. It moved to military property, which is mm-hmm. a bit of a half of, <laughs> a, 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 of a victory, but yeah. still something of a victory, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thirdly, they said that they would um, be, there would be a lot more sort of... Uh, they would deep, more deeply examine who, which countries they're inviting in the future so that non-human rights abusers would not be invited. They lied last time, saying they weren't invited then. Mm-hmm. The media even showed that South Korea was there and the representative of South Africa was there and Chile and Guatemala. Well, so
1: it's, it's hard to imagine a way in which you could use weapons not to violate human rights. But yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> so it's another aspect. on the bottom line, but not yeah. within their definition of yeah. human
0: rights. Yeah. But uh, they, they were exposed they were deeply exposed and I think suffered uh, a moral cut you know, that they, they were exposed, that the the, the, the the sort of evil within them was exposed a little bit there so it was a very successful action I think I think you know, there's countless others uh, it's known actually that the resistance that was occurring in the United States during the Vietnam War stopped nuclear weapons from being used mm-hmm. um, I think who knows how many other times it's stopped them being used in the Persian Gulf or wherever. Just maybe to bring things
1: closer to here, to home, mm-hmm. um, something that you've been vo- involved with a lot is, is sort of welfare rights issues and food issues locally. Mm-hmm. Um, just talking maybe specifically about um, the situation of a lot of people in Peterborough, um, people who use the food bank and people who don't, people who are on welfare or people who... who May, I mean, I suppose we all have the potential to be on welfare sooner mm-hmm. or later. But um, in terms of, of uh, you know, and, and you talked earlier about, about not having a sort of sense of self-awareness of your situation, sort of accepting your lot in life as, you know, destiny or fate or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I suppose, the, do, do you think sort of politicization of people on welfare, uh, People who are being oppressed by by the people around them is important. And secondly, I guess, how do you see that politicization as as being brought about?
0: Yeah, I, I do think it's important. Uh, I think it's very self empowering to find out that you don't have to put a, that. Firstly, that you see yourself as um, that that you become you've become a victim of your situation, and that you're not a lesser person because your income's low, but rather that the circumstances have dictated it rather than the quality of person that you are. I think that's an important lesson for a person to learn. No one, you know, I don't think it's typical of someone who's poor to walk around saying, gee, I'm less of a person because I'm poor, and yet subconsciously that's what they're doing, they're accepting that. Um, if welfare says to them, no, you can't have more money because of this or that, they kind of accept it. Uh, i think it's important to say too that that's a public right to 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 have a, you know to have sufficient income for well-being and uh welfare certainly doesn't provide that mm-hmm. and they're not challenged on it because the people who aren't welfare recipients do often accept that as their lot in life and don't know that that's a right they almost see it as as a charity or a privilege, you know, and that they don't have the right to stand up and say, yes, I am entitled as a human being to financial and social and uh, well-being. I mean, you know, social being that welfare certainly has pays no consideration to their dignity at all. They treat them as, as scum, you know. Um, and I think the way to bring that about, again, would be through a welfare rights group. We plan on forming a welfare rights group in the very near future. Probably within the next month, hopefully mm-hmm. we uh, it might be the new year, given the holidays and stuff, but one things we want to start looking is start looking at specific welfare policies and start holding them to task on on, on what they claim is their objectives and what they should be doing uh, and demanding that they do so that they that they provide sufficient income for people to live that they recognize that actually rents have gone up many fold. While well, they've increased welfare two or three percent or whatever pittance they've increased it by, that uh, that they're saying that they should have a job and yet they won't pay for a phone, so you can get a job. I mean, employers won't run, chase you across town looking for you uh-huh. to hire you you require a job. That single mothers are left without a, a, a phone, they won't cover the cost of a phone for a single mother, and so which could put her child's um, safety. Or, or, yeah, even, I mean, not
1: even, you know, just on the the simple level of human dignity, the fact that they won't tell you when they're going to come and visit you.
0: Definitely, yeah. Sometime in two days. In two days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And so you stand there and sit there and anxious around your apartment waiting, thinking they might show up, and you feel that the fact that they come to the home, it seems it's it's a very uh, judgmental, Thing, you know, and people feel very intimidated. And yeah. I think that's part of the reason they do that, it's an intimidating thing. Then, when you're called into the office, you sit in the waiting room for two hours. They show, show up at nine o'clock and maybe sometime at 11 they'll see you. Mm-hmm. If you go in and you're not a welfare recipient, it's funny how fast they can see you then. You know, if in my role as a, as a social worker, if I go in representing a disabled client, they see me really fast and they're mm-hmm. about about. Once I was even sat in there for about an hour, they called me in. Then they said, "Oh, gee, we're sorry to have kept you waiting. We thought you were a recipient, you know." Right. Uh, and so that's how they, dig, you know, that's another way that their dignity is stepped upon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we see a welfare rights group as having the potential of developing pe- people's self dignity, developing their awareness uh, uh, of policy around these issues. Uh, developing the awareness of how they can strike back. And often when you take a stance and demand what what is fair, that, that those demands will be met if you really stand forward. You know, a lot of times just forgetting to say they have a lot of so-called discretionary benefits, mm-hmm. which means, you know, sort of, in my opinion should be called prejudicial benefits they can give you first and last if you kiss their ass enough yeah Yeah. or or if they happen to see you through their own stereotypes as a worthy person or Mm -hmm. not whereas if someone stands says well if they say no we will not give you this then say well i demand to speak to your supervisor then or i will appeal this through this or i'll go speak to my ombudsman or or an advocate Mm -hmm. and then it's f- things flip over when you do that and that's a very empowering feeling so yeah. I think that we firstly need to become a resource for people so that we can provide them with information so that they can take this stance that they don't feel that they're alone that they don't feel that they don't deserve not to have this benefit or whatever the case may be uh, and uh, as I said that we can have rallies and stuff that is... Going to say that people are right in 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 feeling that they're being treated unfairly, that that there's many others who who are who are suffering that same lot in life, and if they come together, they can bring about change. I think if, for example, you are someone who a typical welfare recipient is, they'll tell you that it's a single, unemployed male under 30, mm-hmm. which is something like 18% of social assistance recipients. When they find out that maybe 40% are single mothers, the large percent of older people, young married couples, on low income, the working poor, so on, then I think um, that they are a lot more inclined to, uh, to 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 understand the plight of people on welfare and to to support them in in their demand for for economic justice. I think to them, when you know, not to in any way. Uh, deny the the, the uh, legitimacy of the the claims of single independent males because when you look at that situation, the average person's only on welfare for three months, not five years or lifelongness that they tend to mm-hmm. portray it as being. That they are undergoing all sorts of scrutiny as to looking for jobs and and so on. Uh, they get put through demeaning programs that teach them how to write an application, whether they need to or not. I, once was on welfare and I told them that I had a university degree and they still had to put me through a program on how to write a bloody application, you know, and Mm -hmm. the person even who was leading the course was saying, well, sorry, this is really stupid, but this is my job to have to put you through this bullshit. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And so, uh, yeah, I, I think it could, I think those people can be reached. If the truth is known, and, and certainly the truth is being hidden, and this is another thing of welfare, is they certainly don't take it upon themselves to educate the public as to the uh, as to the life situation of people on social assistance. They probably do the opposite. Mm-hmm. I think they do a lot to reify those prejudices uh, and to perpetuate them. Uh, and uh, I think that their adversarial position towards social assistance recipients should be challenged and broken down you know they should be on the side of those people not against them and yet superficial scrutiny will reveal that they're not mm-hmm. you know it's it's their budget that matters the least you can give the better your budget looks right. uh, and i think that's what dictates a lot of it plus a lot of social assistance workers tend to have a lot of prejudices fba is a lot better than than general welfare, mm-hmm. but, but it could sure as hell do with a lot of improvement too. How do you feel about things, and this this doesn't
1: entirely relate to what we're talking about now, but in ways it does, about things like uh, this whole so-called green movement that's happening now, spearheaded by Dave Nickel and the <laughs> Loblaws gang. Do you think uh-huh. that that, um, do you sort of, uh, do you look at that and say... Wow, all that stuff we did you know two or three years ago it's finally paying off or do you see this as sort of being a a very base political move on their point just sort of designed to self aggrandize
0: well I I mean I don't think we can fool ourselves in thinking you know sort of revolution or nothing kind of thing so when we see small steps forward yeah I think we firstly do we should feel good about what we've done and feel what has made a difference. And I don't think, you know, quite often, if we're going to be realistic about it, we have to say that that we can't expect a business's motives to be good because that's not the way they operate. Mm-hmm. And so when they, when their motives are wrong and yet still they do it, all the better. I mean, that's just the way that's going to work, you know. Uh, I remember once that back in 1982, I believe, or 83, uh, Safeway and Supervalue, which is a large food chain out in the prairies, said that they were no longer going to carry South African produce. Mm-hmm. And they said it wasn't because of a moral position they were taking, but because they weren't selling. These right. <laughs> things weren't selling, people weren't buying them. Right. And that was, to me, I mean, I think that was one of the most politically important events that happened. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't even in the midst of a huge campaign or anything. It's just basic decency that was so widespread it affected the buying public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the business was honest about it and just came out and said, yeah, the people forced us into this. I think, too, that Loblaws was kind of forced into it by people, too. They did it, yes, for profit motives, that mm-hmm. we should feel good that the public have, uh, have said, this is now profitable for you to to, to take the environment into consideration. Mm-hmm. You know that that consciousness has been increased that much that that it's sellable. You know that the the environment can take taking the environment into concern has become marketably you know right. good or defensible. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that's that's beneficial. I mean, it's certainly not as far as I'd like to see it go or anyone in the environmental movement, but it's certainly a big step. Now consumption habits are such a huge part of, you know, the environmental problem. I, I mm. think it's I think it's positive. Right.
1: Maybe you could just finish off by um giving your prognosis for the human race. <laughs> 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 do you do you think um do you think so, will, will we survive things, tomorrow? Will, well will we survive tomorrow or do you think that um are we going in a in a better direction now than we have had before, or do you, do you sort of have a, a sense that things are going to change in your generation?
0: Uh, I think maybe one of the most hopeful situations we can draw upon is what's happening in, in the East right now. You know, what maybe seemed like a uh, you know indestructible situation, uh, uh, all of a sudden is going through changes. I'm not sure. I mean, when when the West is so quick to, to fly up its flag of democracy, I, I'm not sure it's going to go anything towards real democracy. It'll probably become more like this farce of democracy that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but perhaps it will turn into something hopeful. But minimally, I think the hopeful message there was that what seems unchangeable is changeable, and that people can bring about significant change. I think at any point when you look at revolution throughout the past or any significant social changes, you couldn't predict it a day before. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been the case in history. And so, even when this system seems indestructible, when it seems that change could never happen, somewhere out of the blue it does, and, and, and situations improve. Uh, who knows if, if what we replace it with will be. A better situation. I don't mean we that you know, given that the activists would <laughs> would be able to design the society afterwards, yeah. or even if that's a desirable thing, but necessarily, but at least that that change happens and that the problems of society does become recognised. I think we are seeing some signs that that's starting to happen. Also, I think, like I said, that we are we we see many examples where out of the blue, significant change does happen. So I think, yes, it's hopeful. Thank you. Thank you.